I should warn you that some in the audience might find the content of this presentation quite depressing, despite my best intention. Almost 30 years ago, the British historian John Ellis opened his masterpiece on the subject of poverty in Africa, entitled The African Poor, A History, with these haunting words. I quote, Africa's splendor lies in its suffering. The heroism of African history is to be found not in the deeds of kings, but in the struggles of ordinary people against the forces of nature and the cruelty of men. End of quote. In his chronicle of the struggles of the African poor for survival, Elif uncovered the evolutionary nature of poverty in Africa viewed from a historical perspective. By far the most honest account of the subject for its clarity of purpose, incisive analysis, and resolute avoidance of stereotypes, the author proved that poverty was not a settled question, but that it evolves within human history. More importantly, Elif's research demonstrated that poverty was neither a disembodied abstraction uh, no, a tasteless order for mere theoretical disquisition or statistical computation. It has been and always is connected to concrete human experience. Experience like that of health, age, mobility, disability, land, labor, gender, and environment. And furthermore, that poverty is shaped by religious traditions, political maneuvering, and sociological configuration of the African family. Now, rereading Elif's work, I find that it also has the distinction of avoiding the practice common to developmental analysts and experts, practice of assembling sophisticated macroeconomic data to assess Africa's fortunes or misfortunes, as if the poor were nothing but interesting statistics to be plotted into graphs or sliced into charts. It will seem, however, that Elif's historical methodology is conveniently sidelined by experts for whom macroeconomics is gold standard for measuring the standard of living and quality of life. Well, speaking of macroeconomics, the evidence gives much cause to cheer regarding Africa's economic prospects. 
The continent has registered tremendous growth and progress on many fronts. A convergence of data from leading organizations such as the African Development Bank, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and the United Nations Development Program indicates that the continent lies on an inexorable axis of growth. The surest gauge of which is a gradual reduction in the ranks of the poor, that is, of people living below the poverty line in absolute or extreme poverty, calculated on an average daily consumption of 1.25 US dollars or less. By this measure, happily, Today, less than half of Africans now live below the poverty line. But half the population of 1.1 billion still translates into an alarming number of people in absolute poverty, especially if three-fifths of that population is under the age of 25 years. To put this in context, it is almost exactly the same number of people, roughly 500 million, that China has single-handedly lifted out of poverty since 1981. Which makes me wonder, could Africa ever muster commensurate colossal effort and resources to reduce and eradicate poverty on that scale? Africa's economic prospect measured in GDP terms is always punctuated by a caveat. The story is hardly ever undiluted good news. Consider the following headlines. Africa's 5.2 GDP growth has meant more jobs for people, but not better paying jobs. There is growth in extractive and service industries, but Africa lags behind in industrialization. Sub-Saharan African countries are growing faster than several economies in the world, but the Ebola outbreak has wiped off any prospect of growth in Sierra Leone, in Guinea, and Liberia. The world has met the Millennium Development Goal, goal of halving poverty by 2015, but Africa fell short by 15%. Recent sustained growth is transforming Africa's economies, but if the global economy weakens and commodity prices fall further, Africa's growth will be affected. The point is, this is the mantra. Africa still lags behind. Never quite able to plant a sure footing on the ladder of development. Well, useful as they may be, 
Quantitative indices like GBPs and FDIs often paint a picture unmatched by realities on the ground. The problem of poverty in Africa, therefore, is not just a question of numbers. Hence, macroeconomics is not enough. I believe that in regard to poverty, Africa's problems are mostly local, not genetic, nor are they anthropological, as some have argued, as if it were built into the constitution itself of the African. One factor of poverty that I find is largely missing from scholarly and developmental literature is leadership. I now believe that a chronic leadership deficit dovetails with weak institutions of governance to keep Africa in a tight poverty trap. It is not mere trivia that the most lucrative prize for excellence in African leadership and good governance goes unclaimed for more than half the time it's been on offer. And I believe that too many African leaders seem completely bereft of the political will to confront the challenge of poverty. The evidence of leadership deficit as a vector of impoverishment on the continent is both staggering and frightening. Not only does poverty of leadership hold back the progress of people, it actively militates against it. When Kenya's vice president spends 12 million US dollars on a private residence fitted with a customized airstrip, or when a Nigerian cabinet minister in charge of petroleum fails to account for 20 billion US dollars, or when a sitting South African president refurbishes his private villa for 20 million US dollars, that I contend is crime against the humanity of the African poor. Yet, Africa's political leadership is notorious for its ability to cobble together a rash of initiatives or invent slogans ostensibly aimed at alleviating, reducing, and eradicating poverty. As I've mentioned, the MDG goals yielded moderate success in Africa. Leaving aside the as yet untested Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, the bane of these poverty eradicating initiatives is the total lack of workable plans or strategy to improve the lot of the continent. Consider, for example, the latest of these initiatives, the African Union's Agenda 2063. And you heard me right, the year 
2063. Launched with pomp and ceremony in 2013, Agenda 2063 identifies seven aspirations that encapsulates what the authors of the agenda call the Africa we want. Aspiration number one, a prosperous Africa based on inclusive growth and sustainable development. Two, an integrated continent politically united and based on the ideals of pan-Africanism and the vision of Africa's renaissance. Three, an Africa of good governance, democracy, respect for human rights, justice, and the rule of law. Four, a peaceful and secure Africa. Five, an Africa with a strong cultural identity, common heritage, values, and ethics. Six, an Africa where development is people-driven, unleashing the potential of its women and youth. And seven, Africa as a strong, united, and influential global player and partner. It is, I admit, a lofty agenda worthy of a severely impoverished continent. However, the first question raised by a vision of such grandiose pomposity is simply, well, how? How? And here is how Agenda 2063 frames the response, and I quote, We are determined to eradicate poverty in one generation. We are determined to build shared prosperity through social and economic transformation of the continent. We aspire that by 2063, Africa shall be a prosperous continent with the means and resources to drive its own development, end of quote. You see, the entire agenda follows the same pattern of emitting wishes, aspirations, and nostrums devoid of any workable plan or strategy, providing thus a fitting illustration of the good old English proverb, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. The second point, the arithmetic of the agenda is as simple as it is baffling. If we assume an average life expectancy as we do today at birth in Africa of 52 years, in 2013, the year of the agenda's publication, it is clear that this agenda is designed not for the living, but for the dead. Since we could reasonably expect none of his aspiration to materialize in our own lifetime. So, like many of its precursors, detached from concrete actions and viable commitments, these initiatives, I believe, are recipes for the perpetual deferment of the realization of the continent's dreams. So you can at least understand from all of this why at home and abroad Africa's place in the world remains precarious. The continent seems stuck in an evolutionary warp. 
The more it changes, the more it stays the same, at least in popular perception. The continent engages, engages the world and negotiates its status from a position of vulnerability. And it's hardly immune to the challenges and opportunities, and I would add, byproducts of globalization. Africa's prospects is further constrained by an extroverted economic arrangement that remains dependent on export commodities and all foreign aid. Take Burundi. Burundi, for example, one of the continent's poorest countries and recently earmarked to be delisted from the U.S. Trade Preference Program for Sub-Saharan African countries. It relies on foreign aid to meet half of its total budget commitment, 50%. The impact of this and other arrangements is writ large on the lives of the African poor. Now, challenges aside, there is little doubt, I believe, that globalization offers Africa assorted possibilities of development and progress. And in my reflection, Africa's youth have been quick at understanding how the opportunities of globalization can enable and embolden and unleash their entrepreneurial spirit. And I am not referring here to world-class marathoners and long-distance runners from Kenya and Ethiopia, <laughs> or others who trek the Sahara across the Mediterranean in search of a better life in the West. Africa's youth, I believe, are incubators of some amazing innovations and solutions that could transform the continent's lot and create an environment conducive to progress and development. I think, for example, of Tanzanian chemical engineer Asuka Hilonga's nanotech-based water filtration device, recognized by the UK's Royal Academy of Engineering as an innovation that could change the lives of many Africans and people all over the world. I think, for example, of Ugandan pediatricians uh, Santarino Data's augmented infant resuscitator, an invention that could save the lives of one million newborns who die annually from breathing difficulties. Or 15-year-old Kenyan uh, Richard Turere's Lion Light, invented to reduce human-wildlife conflict on the edge of Nairobi's National Park. And there are many such examples. And so the sum of my line of thought is that Africa's greatest resources are its own peoples. And there are a billion of them. It is to them that the continent's productive resources ought to be channeled. Building the capacity of Africans require, therefore, I believe, investment in two key areas, education and health. The recent Ebola crisis has 
did HIV AIDS before that is a stark reminder of what damage a weak healthcare system and infrastructure can do to a country's progress. A healthy and well-educated continent can overcome any forces that would militate against its progress, be it Ebola or Boko Haram. Essentially, then, the call is to invest in health and education, and therefore a call as well to create those conditions that enable and promote human flourishing, inclusion, and participation. Coincidentally, education and health are the two domains where religious organizations and communities like the church have created a lasting impact on the fortunes of the continent. If these are indeed incontestable common goods, as I believe they are, faith communities could do, could offer no greater act of service than the promotion of education and health and similar conditions that, as Pope John XXIII taught us decades ago, allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more and I would add, considering the thesis of this presentation, that the common good is not measurable exclusively in economic terms. To conclude this brief presentation, John Elif further writes, and I quote, Like pre-industrial Europe, Africa was and is a harsh place for the weak. End of quote. In our day and age, the weak are the 500 African women who will die today during and following pregnancy and childbirth. The weak are the 50 African children below the age of five who will die one every 30 seconds in the course of this 25-minute lecture. The weak and the poor are the 15 million Africans possibly displaced by conflict, violence, human rights abuses, and ecological disasters, not a few of them lost at sea or in the Sahara. And so, in conducting a discourse on the preferential option for the poor, it is, I believe, absolutely important to bear in mind that the poor do not don poverty as a cloak of honor. Poverty violates human dignity. For this reason, Pope Francis's wish for a church that is poor and for the poor, must embody an ecclesiology of solidarity and liberation from an ignoble system that shackles millions of women and men of the continent against their will. While, unlike Pope Francis, I refrain from finding common cause with French economist Thomas Piketty in laying the blame for poverty at the doorsteps of unfettered global, global capitalism or free market economy, 
My sympathies lie with the Pope, for whom morality, not theory, echoes a stronger call to action on behalf of the poor and the marginalized of Africa and elsewhere. And I thank you for your kind attention. Our next speaker is Dr. Anna Rowlands, who is lecturer in contemporary Catholic theology and deputy director of the Centre for Catholic Studies here at Durham. Before Durham, she lectured on political and moral theology at King's College London and at Cambridge, where she also worked in ministerial theological education at the Margaret Beaufort Institute. She currently teaches and writes on political theology and has a specialist interest in Catholic social thought. Indeed, she's writing a book for theologians and policy makers on Catholic social teaching, A Guide for the Perplexed, uh, which I look forward very much to reading. <laughs> Anna's theology is very practical. And her current research is the area of migration and theological ethics. She's also founding chair of the Centre for Catholic Social Thought and Practice, which brings together academics and practitioners, including CAFOD, the Caritas Social Action Network, CSAM, Citizens UK, and Together for the Common Good. So please welcome her when she, as she addresses us on the theme, For I Was a Stranger, Globalization, Migrancy, Asylum and Catholicism. Thank you very much Mark and Bethel um, as well. Um, where many others have tried and failed, a common cold has triumphed and I have slightly less voice. Um, than I would normally have, but I'm hoping that it's going to hold out. The other kind of brief introductory comment I should probably make with regard to my paper is that Karen asked me to speak on the theme of asylum and migrancy in Europe before the events of this summer. And therefore, I've very slightly changed the focus of my paper to take account of the events of this summer. So rather than doing a kind of broader scriptural and doctrinal reflection um, that I would have done perhaps previously, I'm going to do something just very slightly different, and uh, I hope you'll, you'll bear with me. This summer, Europe has been shaken to the core, caught between an open-hearted response to the image of a tiny body washed up on a shoreline and complicated cycles of fear about the arrival of strangers. Meanwhile, a continuous stream of humanity clambered out of tiny dinghies 
and began arduous treks through the heart of the continent. Difficult pilgrimages in search of order, peace, freedom and economic survival. Finally, Europe is being forced to confront the reality that ours is a generation that will be marked profoundly by the movement of displaced peoples. In 2015 alone, over 700,000 migrants have arrived in Europe by sea. More than 3,000 have died in the waters of the Mediterranean. Over 500,000 of these arrivals have asked for asylum, for refugee status in Europe. Hungary, and this is not often said, has received 665 asylum applications per 100,000 of its population. So although much of the emphasis is on Germany, in fact so far Germany has taken about 190,000 per 100,000. In the UK so far, we have received just 23 per 100,000 applications. The majority of arriving migrants are Syrian, Afghan, Kosovan, Eritrean, Somalian, Albanian, Pakistani, Ukrainian, Serbian, Iraqi and Nigerian. This is a mixed flow of migrants. And yet this summer's arrivals represent a tiny fraction of the world's displaced population, which stands at 59 million. By the way, that's an increase of 8 million in one year alone. In reality, a tiny proportion of those who are asking for asylum in Europe are likely to be granted their dream of refugee status under the narrow terms of the 1951 Convention and the 1967 Protocol. However, given that figures for removals and returns of those who we refuse asylum to remain low, what is most likely to happen to those 500,000 who have requested asylum is that they will exist not with the refugee status that they crave, but will subsist in a state of legal, political and economic limbo, surviving in the shadows on European territory, but without meaningful political, economic or social membership of the European community. This crisis is both old and new. Intense waves of migration have been a hallmark of European history. However, we are now witnessing what appears to be a significant development in the patterns of migration towards Europe. Such shifts can be characterised as threefold. A shift in the pace, destination and complexity of motivations for migration. A focusing of migratory flows on the central Mediterranean routes, particularly sea routes from politically destabilised North Africa, and a steady mixed flow of environmental, political, religious and economic migrants. This is but a beginning of a trend that will mark our times. What has also shifted over the last two decades is the story that the European nation-state has told itself about its relation to the migrant who seeks entry. To grasp the significance of this shift and the role of Christian practice in response, 
I suggest that we might briefly take a long view. Asylum means literally what cannot be seized. It should be apparent to us from the outset that the phrase carries a transcendent meaning, the idea of a protected entity. In practical legal terms, it, refer, it refers to the right to reside. In the early legal theory of Protestant Hugo Grotius and Catholic Francisco Suarez, the right was both a duty of the state and a natural right of the individual. The state granted asylum on the basis of its international humanitarian duty. Legal scholars have also interestingly long claimed that the normative character, the normative moral character of this international duty is directly connected to the enduring character of asylum provision across time, religion and culture. The Christian theological roots of contemporary European asylum law are core to this case. The faith-based origins of asylum are traced to the notion of territorial asylum found in Judaism's temple and later city-based practice of asylum, a tradition for the protection of the innocent from harm. This Jewish teaching is rooted in both a prohibition against doing harm and an injunction to love the stranger as yourself. Christianity inherited this understanding and intensified the link between the care offered to those in distress and salvation. Both traditions teach that the stranger, the exile and the person in distress carry to the so-called settled community a form of often difficult to decipher divine message. Migrants are icons somehow of the church's own nature. As the church spread through mission, so a territorialised understanding of asylum travelled with it. Theodosian and Justinian codexes formalised the church's role as intercessor and territorial protector for those in distress. This tradition, which reached its high point in the 12th century, is then adopted by the state itself, but clearly on parallel grounds to those previously used by the church. The most significant normative shift in the modern practice of asylum happens, however, in the wake of the religious wars and the French Revolution, with protection for freedom of thought and a focus on the politically persecuted. The new religious and political divisions of Europe produced the modern political and religious refugee. Newly founded republics developed a new language and self-understanding for asylum, predicated on values of liberty and equality. To fail to grant asylum according to these new republics would be to contradict the founding visions of the liberal state itself. Catholic legal scholar Maria Teresa Gilbarzo writes, it becomes increasingly clear that asylum aims to protect the higher values on which the state itself is founded, national liberation, justice, democracy, and human rights. In this sense, we can say that asylum norms have never just been about the protection of individuals. 
These norms concern an animating vision of the world incarnated through communities of practice, temple, church, and later the liberal state. These norms express the theodic vision of communities who, in the face of human suffering, recalled their commitments to membership of a prior universal human family that precedes, transcends, and yet can be sometimes instantiated within the membership of states. Although asylum has become secularised, it nonetheless continues to function as part of a creation story, the creation story of the modern state. It is therefore not far-fetched to claim that if territorial asylum is in crisis, and I think it is, then our very idea of what it means to inhabit European ecclesial and secular political communities, most especially liberal democratic nation states, is also under stress and in crisis. For both churches and states, sorry, for both churches and states, there is an interconnection. Sorry, my sentence doesn't entirely make sense. I'm just going to rephrase that. Um, so, both churches and states are the places where we see the storied nature of asylum. Randall Hassan and Charles Taylor both suggest that in relation to the admission of migrants, European states are caught in an aporia, a pathlessness, between the principle of liberality of provision, a right to have a claim heard, and legal support in some form, housing and some form of basic welfare provision, and a political desire to limit the possibilities of claiming such provision. There is thus a contradiction at the heart of current European state practice between the abstract rhetoric of inclusion and a concrete standing temptation to exclude using extreme forms of coercion in the case of the asylum seeker. This tension is most visible in the political rhetoric of hospitality that is then matched by increasingly securitised and privated public immigration policies which are marshalled towards territorial exclusion and expulsion. Catholic faith-based organisations have expressed particular concern about current European trends towards the increased use of immigration detention for the administrative management of migrant flows. The use of legislative power to create new forms of legal and welfare privation, such that both systems of welfare and law are marshalled less towards positive justice and more towards the use of forms of destitution to maximise levels of deterrence and expulsion. And finally, the displacement by sovereign states of their migration control functions onto the high seas, into detention centres and offshore handling facilities. Many of these facilities, born from the failure of immigration policies, are operated by private profit-making agencies. Immigration control is emerging as a highly profitable market, but it is a market in failure. This trend simultaneously distances the state from direct responsibility for the moral conduct of some of the state's riskiest moral enterprises, coercive practices enacted upon, upon non-citizens, and introduces a new set of moral actors 
who have been the subject of little ethical reflection. It is also true that whilst the state draws more distant and the private sector more proximate, the intermediate organisations of civil society, including the churches, find it harder to fulfil their own socialisation and solidarity role in relation to arriving migrants. What seems clear to both Catholic faith-based organisations and to secular commentators alike is the absence of a substantive structuring notion of the good applicable to state and private actors that we wish a European migration policy to embody. Despite public speeches given by leaders appealing to ideas of dignity or compassion in broad terms, the drive, the structural drive of national and regional policy manifests the absence of an animating, coordinated and substantive vision of the good. Here an important moral theological question arises. If we cannot, or we do not try, to agree on what we are for, on a substantive account of the moral good we aim for in the case of migration provision, are we not pushed endlessly towards a negative cycle of reaction through which we find unity only in what we are against and we make public policy to suit? The absence of an attempt towards the common good is never theologically neutral. In the absence of an orientation towards the good, evil takes hold. Is this partly how we can come to make theological sense of the cycles of fear that drive us towards building higher walls, towards a narrative that we are securer when we are isolated and insulated from relation with the other? Here a further question arises. Does the absence of a substantive account of the good produce not only a drive, a negative drive, towards enforcement-orientated practices, but also the emergence of distorted modalities of good and evil which refuse to be suppressed within public discourse. This is to ask whether, despite, or perhaps precisely because of, the absence of substantive goods in public policy, talk of good and evil nonetheless irrepressibly reinvents itself, but shorn of its ethical groundings. It is not that we lack any language of good and evil in public debate, but that the language we have adopted of good and evil has become shorn of its meaningful relation to categories and practices of love and justice, becoming more Manichaean than Christian in form. The absolute distinction between good and bad kinds of migrants, between poor victims and vicious smugglers, good European intentions and illegal human others speaks to this. One critical example of this logic can be seen in the suggestion mooted by Australian and British governments that less is owed to the forced migrant who displays both independence and tenacity and travels independently to reach safety, rather than the migrant who remains internally displaced or settles in a refugee camp that unauthorised migrants boarding boats are somehow less morally worthy or deserving, less good than those in the camps. I want to suggest that such an understanding of the moral worth of migrants exists in a fairly fundamental tension with the Catholic moral tradition. 
We noted above the recognition of a right... Sorry, I, um, this refers to, to um, uh, a further point I decided not to make. The Catholic social teaching suggests that there is an absolute right to flee um, in the context of, um, of displacement. So I would have noted above that the recognition of the right to flee and to seek sanctuary in the face of violence and persecution um, is absolute. In his 16th century work on justice and rights, Francisco de Vitoria addresses directly a right to travel. He roots a right to travel in what he describes as the first state of humankind, a natural right to partnership and communication, a jus communicationis. The development of political bordered communities, he says, is meant to facilitate, not frustrate, this essential social and relational characteristic of the human person. All laws of hospitality and protection stem from this basic communicative nature of the person, from the sociality, interdependence and rationality of the human person. Thus, Victoria imagines a political philosophy in which there is a natural community of human beings across which minimum standards of justice are binding and in which the individual maintains a radical freedom to seek the good. On this foundation, Victoria builds an account of human rights rooted in welfare or passive rights, that is, benefits or goods due to the human person simply because they are a human person, and active liberties. A welfare or passive right constitutes a right to live free from persecution as the beneficiary of the basic goods necessary to forge a livelihood and to raise a family. These are minimum conditions that we claim from the political community. These benefits have an economic, ecological, as well as political dimension. But we also possess active rights to liberty rooted in a biblical understanding of freedom, rooted in the power to act, and the dominion, in a genesis sense, that we are called to exercise in the world. Victoria roots this in what he sees as a Thomist understanding of the image of God. Made in the image of God, we are equipped to know God. We are equipped with a capacity to act freely in the world, a capacity for rationality and self-mastery, and a capacity to exercise dominion, but always rooted in that prior relationship, that communicating relationship with God and the communicating relationship we seek with the human other. Thus, Victoria imagines a system of benefits and liberties within a system of mutual, reciprocal obligations between migrant and host. This view does not fit easily with either a completely open borders or a radically closed borders view. Victoria reinforces the idea of sovereignty, but sovereignty in service to a particular vision of the human person already in relation to the creator. Such a vision from Catholic jurisprudence should at least trouble any suggestion of an a priori lesser moral duty towards the migrant who boards a boat in pursuit of the goods rendered by membership of a functioning political and economic community. In this light, it is also striking that the mass civil disobedience by migrants in the summer of 2015 
has been targeted at the operating norms regulating migrants' access to membership rather than against the substantial legal frameworks themselves. Migrants have not refused to claim asylum. Rather, they have refused to claim asylum in the first country of entry. They have refused to be fingerprinted and documented by nations they do not wish to remain in. They have refused to accept the call to remain in countries where they determine no real opportunities for livelihood and citizenship. Migrants, whether refugees or so-called economic migrants, report that their movements are driven by a desire to settle where they have language skills, established family or cultural connections, relevant economic skills and opportunities for education and self-development. Such motivations ironically mirror the vision of the good and of human sociality held by the Catholic tradition. In natural law terms, I hesitate to mention natural law after last night, but nonetheless, in natural law terms, it makes sense that migrants seek these goods and that political communities have a duty to respond with urgency and efficiency to such requests. And I think if um, Batal was talking to us about a crisis of political leadership in an African context, then we're talking about a radical crisis of political leadership in a European context, which matches and parallels that. There's no African monopoly on that experience, sadly. So in turn, these orientations have been visible in the advocacy priorities developed by Catholic NGOs, discerned through responsiveness to the Catholic tradition and a deep listening to migrant experience. Both the wider tradition and the practical work of Catholic faith-based organisations communicate the expectation that both substantive law and the operational frameworks that guide access to that law work with a thick concept of the human person as possessor of both passive or welfare rights and liberties to act and determine their lives in community. In conclusion, I want to suggest that in response to the current situation, we must ask, how might both academic theology and the churches be part of the process of reimagining the institution of asylum as refuge for those in distress in the 21st century? In his Lampedusa sermon and in Laudato Si, Pope Francis offered a three-part theological response to guide this reflection. Recognition of the disorientation of European culture in relation to the goods sought by those on the move is his first point. He identifies this disorientation as an expression of social sin, a sin typically hidden but made visible to us in the experiences of those on the move. So when we ask the liberation theology question, what does it mean to say in terms of the option for the poor, that the poor are both receive um, salvation in a kind of preferential way, but also are agents of salvation in history, then the point that many theologians of migration are making is that those on the move are making visible to us pre-existing structures of sin, which most of the time are invisible to us. There is a, revely, a revealing act um, that is happening in the process of what is being displayed before us in images, and Pope Francis kind of understands that. He emphasises that whilst there is a crisis of political will, a political crisis in the case of migrant response 
also always reveals to us a crisis of civil society. So it can be too easy for us to say that what we're facing is a crisis of political leadership. We are. But a crisis of political leadership in the context of compassion for refugees and migrants reveals to us at another level the structural sins of civil society. And that can be harder for us to stomach and reflect on. Are we willing to confront this dual crisis, which has political and spiritual components, he asks us. And finally, he reminds us that the task of accompaniment is core to the intellectual, theological and pastoral mission of the church. But this will require a willingness by both the theologian and the ordinary Christian, not just to be with those who suffer, but rather in more disturbing terms, Pope Francis is clear that we must be willing to suffer with others. This is disturbing news for Europeans. Whilst the Church has good reason to support the legal structures that recognise refugee need, this perhaps ought not to limit our imagination and our memories about what protection and accompaniment of the stranger on the move might mean. So I'm interested in the way that there's that broader, longer history of the institution of asylum, which was rooted in Christian practices and Christian doctrines, that was narrowed when the state took over that provision. We have a wider concept of what it means to offer refuge, and without in any way denigrating the refugee law provision we have, the Christian communities need to fundamentally reimagine how the church becomes itself in enacting hospitality, care, um, and in offering forms of refuge. Papal encyclicals point rightly to the multifaceted causes of displacement, environmental, economic, political, and the need for systems for the management of migrant flows, which recognise this humanitarian reality and respond with political and economic creativity. We do not have legal provisions right now that match human need. In the absence of political and legal mechanisms, the stories of migrants on the move indicate that ironically the structures most responsive to their immediate needs are perversely the informal markets that facilitate and often though not always exploit their onward movement and the old structures of faith, both through relief, aid and accompaniment and through forms of Islamic finance. The first task of the church is, of course, to incarnate its own story of creation and redemption in its accompaniment of the human person. We should expect that this will draw us into forms of conflictual solidarity. Being the church properly so will lead us to confrontations with power. This will not be easy in a European context. But is it also possible to imagine that through demonstrating a different logic in Christian practice, performing another story, that we might stimulate a different kind of political imagination. The history of asylum provision shows us that legal renewal can spring from grounding in a wider network of social and ecclesial action, from social relations whose raison d'etre is rooted in deeper structures of solidarity and communication. And I don't want to give up on that. But this will be a challenge. For the church itself has a mixed history with regards to migration, has caused displacement as much as cared for the displaced. And so the necessary ecclesial response 
to the current crisis will require the church to lead a process of ecclesial as much as political and civic conversion. very much indeed, Anna, for that talk, um, which once again showed us how the crisis of the state is so often based in a crisis of morality and failure to articulate a clear account of the common good. Um, right, we have some time for questions, and uh, what I'd like you to do, if I may, is uh, uh, put your hand up. A roving mic will hopefully appear. Um, when I point to you, and um, could you please limit your contributions to questions and brief comments, and not mini lectures? Um, so uh, let's go. Janet Soskis here in a minute. Thank you. 